This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Please open your Bible with me to the book of 1 John chapter 1. We might say saved or redeemed, maybe regenerated or justified or born again. These are all terms that we use for being a Christian, something that I hope can be said of all of us who are here tonight. But how do you know? How do you know that you're born again? How do you know that you're a child of God? I'm not going to have you raise your hands tonight, but I wonder how many of us who are here tonight have struggled with that question. How do I know? How many of us have struggled with the assurance of our salvation? How many of us have asked that question, am I really saved? I've heard people say something along the lines of, you know, I was saved on February 4th, 2024, and I've never doubted my salvation since. And if that is your testimony, then I praise the Lord for that. That's a gift. I'm truly grateful for that for you, but I dare say that many, if not most of us, have at some point or another doubted our salvation, or perhaps you're even struggling with doubt even now. And that's a big part of why I want us to turn to this book of 1 John tonight. And tonight I want to begin a series of messages in this little book of 1 John. When I was four years old, maybe I was five, uh, one night my older brother kept saying something to me along the lines of, Nathaniel, you need to get saved or you're going to go to hell. Now, I was a sensitive child, but I don't think you'd have to be a sensitive child to be a four or five-year-old and for that to really get to you, all right? He's saying this over and over again to me. We're in the bunk bed. It's bedtime. And so he keeps talking. I keep crying. <laughs> and then my dad shows up to figure out what in the world is going on. Why aren't the boys going to bed? And so he gets the story, and my dad takes me out to the living room to talk it over. And as, as I remember it, we're talking, and the phone rings, and my dad goes to answer the phone, and I fall asleep. <laughs> and so he carries me to bed, and then we pick up the conversation the next day. And that next day, I pray with my dad, I ask the Lord to save me, and, you know, I praise the Lord for a brother who cared about my soul. I don't know about his methods, but he cared about me, okay? I praise the Lord for a, a dad who, who took the time to lay out that truth to me. And I'm grateful for God who can save the soul of a little four- or five-year-old. But I'm going to be honest with you tonight. My memory of all of that is really fuzzy. I think I remember it, but I don't remember specifically what my dad told me. I don't remember specifically what I prayed. I don't remember how I felt. 
Well, fast forward until I'm 11, 12, 13 years old, somewhere around there, and I start to really struggle with some of this. Because through the years, I hear lots of people share their testimonies of salvation, and often people give these super clear, powerful testimonies. Perhaps you have a testimony like this, where uh, you, you're able to talk about the specifics of the story, exactly what you prayed to God, how he flooded your heart with joy, and how your life was transformed. Perhaps that's your testimony. If not, I'm sure you've heard somebody else's testimony along those lines. And that's a powerful thing, and it's a great thing, and it makes us praise the Lord. But I, I, over the years, I hear these testimonies again and again, people talking about these amazing salvation experiences. And I'm over here saying, I can't give a date and a time. I'm not even exactly sure how old I was. I don't remember what I prayed. Am I really saved? Well, during some evangelism training here at Good News that um, the, the youth group did, I did with the other teens here, um, I was in my, my early teens at the time, we're learning about the nature of faith, and the curriculum said something along the lines of the fact that Faith is not about how much faith the person believing has. It's about who their faith is in. And, and that truth was really helpful to me. It, uh, it really helped me with some of these things I was struggling with. It really calmed some of my doubts. But there is one thing in my Christian life that's helped me more than anything else with this matter of assurance of my own salvation. And that's this book of 1 John. As I look back at my fuzzy memory of that day when I was a kid, honestly, I'm not 100% sure I got saved that day. But when I look at the truths of the book of 1 John, I am honestly 100% sure that I'm saved now. And I hope as we study through this book together, you'll understand why. And I hope that many of you will be as helped by this book as I have been. Uh, over the course of this, our study of this book, we're going to look at six different signs of new life that are given to us in this book of 1 John. And these are things that stand as irrefutable evidences of salvation. And I'll plan to take one sermon to tackle each of those six evidences, but tonight... I just want to kind of lay the, the foundation, give some foundational truths that help us to, to think about this, this whole concept and to understand what we're getting into as we begin to study this book of 1 John. So take a look with me at 1 John chapter 1. I want to consider the first three verses together. Scripture says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John gives a, a little callback here to the Gospel of John by referring to Jesus Christ in that first verse as the word of life. If you're familiar with how the, the book of John starts, it starts by talking about the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
uh, and, and it goes on to talk about the nature of Jesus Christ. And so John kind of harkens back to that as he calls Christ the word of life here. And he talks about the intimate relationship that he and others have had with Jesus Christ. Those who literally, physically heard his words and saw him and, and actually touched him. He's saying this was our privilege. This was what we were able to experience. And he wants to share that with them. But it's interesting, as he begins by talking about the person of Jesus Christ, he's not setting himself apart and saying, I got this closeness with Jesus Christ, this relationship with Jesus Christ. Sorry, guys, it's not going to be something you're ever going to know. Now, many of the people that he's writing to surely didn't actually see and, and hear and touch Jesus Christ in person. But he's saying, we got to be there in person, but I'm going to share this with you because guess what? He tells them in verse 3, this isn't just our fellowship with him, all of us. All of us who are in Christ have this relationship, this closeness, this fellowship with him who is the word of life. And so he's beginning, as soon as we start, he starts to talk about the nature of the Christian life and what it looks like and evidences of that life. He's starting off by saying, here's the nature of it, this relationship with Christ. And he marvels at this close fellowship that all believers share with Christ. But it actually goes even deeper than that. And I want you to follow along with me here. So notice that John refers to Jesus as the word of life in verse 1 and as that eternal life in verse 2. If you read through that verse 2, you realize as he talks about that eternal life, he's talking about Jesus Christ, but referring to him as eternal life. We know from other places in Scripture that at the time of salvation, we are given eternal life. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we know from scripture, as soon as you get saved, as soon as you trust in Christ, you receive the gift of eternal life. But what the book of 1 John makes very clear is that new life, that eternal life, that everlasting life is the life of Christ in us. We have fellowship with, we have relationship with him who is eternal life. He lives in us, thus we have eternal life. Those two things go together. We see that here in, in chapter 1. We see it also very clearly in chapter 5, 1 John 5, verses 11 through 13. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So to have the Son is to have eternal life. To have eternal life is to have the Son. And you might say, why are you belaboring this point? Why does this matter? Why is this significant? Well, 
because it changes our perception of what it means to have eternal life. A lot of times when we think about the, the reality of having the gift of eternal life at salvation, we just think about the fact that, hey, we're going to live forever. That's great. We're going to live forever in heaven. That's even greater. And that's what we think of when we think of having the gift of eternal life. We've been given eternal life. All right, we get to live with it together. Or we get to live forever in heaven with God. That's a wonderful thing, but there's more to it than that. When God says we have eternal life or new life, he's saying so much more than that. He's saying that the very nature of our life is changed because we have the word of life, the one who is everlasting life, living his life in us. So when we realize that we've been given eternal life, it's more than just one day I'm going to get to live forever. No, it's my life has been traded out for his life, and that's who I am now. And so that changes a whole lot more than just what's going to happen to me in the future. It changes everything. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's new life. The very nature of the life is different. A new creature, or you may hear it expressed, a new creation it's a different thing altogether. It's not just the, new, the old thing, you know, refurbished a little bit. It's totally new. It's totally different. It's new life. And so if you have new life, if I have new life, we're saved, there are going to be things about our life that will be fundamentally, fundamentally different from the non-new lives around us. I want us to understand this as we get into this, that we understand the nature of what's really at the heart of the Christian life. Just as a very silly illustration of this, if you put gravel in a coffee machine, you're not going to get coffee. If you put bad coffee in a coffee machine, you're going to get bad coffee. If you put Dunkin' coffee in a coffee machine, you're going to be happy. We understand that. What's inside is going to come out. If it's different on the inside, that's what's going to make the difference for what shows on the outside. And so what we understand here is, as, as John is introducing us to this whole concept of new life, of eternal life, he's saying it's different on the inside because the life of Christ is living in you. And so everything's different. This is what the book of 1 John is saying. And so as we look at the first book of 1 John, as we read through it, John is telling us, here's what eternal life looks like. That life I talked about, the life of Christ in you, here's what it looks like. Here's going to be the, the outward manifestations of the fact that it's different on the inside. Here are the signs of new life. So, this is important for us to consider, and especially as we think about this matter of assurance. Here's why this is an important thing for us to understand. Many of us, when we begin to have some degree of doubt about our salvation, or 
or even about somebody else's salvation, we'll often turn to one of two things. One, we may turn to our feelings. We might ask ourselves the question, do I feel like I'm saved? Do I have a sense of the presence of God in my life? Does it feel like I feel like it's supposed to feel like? We do that sometimes, though, right? And we can, if, if we can get ourselves to conjure up the right sort of feelings inside about Jesus or about the Bible or about spiritual things, then we feel better about it. As long as we can make those feelings come back, then we say, okay, I'm all right. I must be saved. Another thing we may do is we may turn to our salvation experience. We might ask ourselves the question, do I really think that I got saved back then? Did it seem real back then? Did I do it right? And if our salvation experience was dramatic enough or our memory of it is clear enough, then by replaying that in our mind, we might feel okay about our salvation. But both of those approaches can be problematic. So let me ask you, if you were suddenly to go unconscious at home and an ambulance shows, responds, the, the EMTs are there, they're trying to determine whether or not you're alive. Sorry, I know it's morbid, but stick with me here, okay? They're trying to determine whether you're alive. What do you expect them to do? Do you expect them to stand back and talk to each other and, you know, I feel pretty good about this one. I could just tell on the way over that this was going to be a good call, that they're going to be fine. We can go ahead and load them up and take them to the ER. I know that, that they're, they're still alive. Or how about this? Would you expect them to start asking other family members or people in the home for documentation? Do you have a birth certificate? Were you there when this person was born? What can you tell me about the pregnancy before they were born? If you weren't there, can you find somebody else who was there who can verify that this person was indeed born? <laughs> now, I'm being intentionally silly here, but we'd expect them to jump in and check for breath and check the pulse and do all of those things that EMTs are supposed to do. We'd expect them to immediately start looking for signs of life not to rely on their feelings about the situation, not to rely on stories from the past, but to say, right now, looking at this person, are they alive or not? Now, don't misunderstand me with all this. There's nothing wrong with feelings. There's nothing wrong with a story of a salvation experience. Those things can be great blessings from God. Those can be things that God uses in our life. I praise, the, I praise the Lord for the fact that a lot of times I feel like I'm saved. That's, that's a wonderful thing, to, to feel the presence of God in my life, to, to feel the joy welling up inside myself because of the relationship I have with him. I praise God for that. I praise God for the testimony that I have and the testimony that so many of you have, talking about that moment when you were saved, 
That's a blessing. That's a great thing. And God can use that. But I think Scripture helps us to understand that if we want assurances of our own salvation and evidences of salvation in others' lives, we ought to look for the signs of life. There are a few different phrases that John uses a lot in this book of 1 John. One is the phrase, hereby we know, or hereby know we. He says things like, hereby we do know that we know him. Hereby know we that we are in him. Hereby we know that we are of the truth. Hereby we know that he abideth in us. Hereby we know, or I'm sorry, hereby know we that we dwell in him. Those are all verses that we're going to consider specifically later on and, and see what they have to tell us. But tonight I just want us to understand these are things that are based not on experience, either past experience or present experience. These are based on evidence, clear signs of new life. These are things that John is saying, these are not subjective things. These are objective evidences that there's new life in you, in me, in others. These are the ways that's going to show on the outside. A couple of verses in 1 John that have long interested me are, are 1 John 3, verses 20 and 21. It says, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. This is a powerful truth here because you look at these verses and you can take this before God and you can say, God, here's what my heart says. What do you say? And we look at this and we can say, if our heart says, yes, you are truly saved, wow, that's a blessing from God, wonderful. But if your heart says, I don't know, doesn't look too good to me, you can take it before God and say, God, here's what my heart says. What does your truth say? And guess which one wins out? God is greater than our heart. I love this truth as someone who has struggled. And I'm sure I'm not alone this evening. It's a blessing to be able to run to this and say, God, you're greater than my heart. And when we do this, we run to his word, we see what he has to say. No longer is our assurance of salvation about feeling or remembering the right things. It's about resting in God's truth. There's another phrase that John uses a good deal in this book. He has a favorite term of address. He calls his readers little children. Now, that's an endearing term, of course, a term of affection. I mean, who doesn't love little children, especially when they're cute and they're acting the right way and they're quiet? <laughs> and certainly he means this as a term of endearment, a term of affection. But there's also something else that this expresses. It gives us the feeling, the idea of weakness, of helplessness. 
So let me ask you, how much did you contribute to your life being brought into this world? How much did you contribute to your conception, to the growth of your body in your mother's womb, to your birth? How much do you contribute to keeping your status as the child of your parents? <laughs> We'd all say, I didn't contribute anything and I can't contribute anything. I'm, I'm, I'm helpless to, to do anything to, to make this happen. John in this book also refers to Christians as the children of God and the sons of God. And this is a reminder to us that our eternal life, like physical life, is a gift. It's not something that we work to earn or that we work to keep. This also reminds us that this relationship that we have with God is before being a master-servant relationship or a commander-soldier relationship, it's a father-child relationship. Meaning that the relationship is defined not by performance, but by the gift of life from one to another. That's what defines our relationship with God. That's what defines who we are. And we are helpless to make that more or less what it is. So for that reason, I'm going to title this series, God's Little Children. And we'll consider those clear signs of new life in the book of First John. And tonight's just the introduction, uh, but I look forward to looking at each of those clear signs of new life uh, as we continue this series. And we'll consider what, what this book teaches us about the nature of a believer's relationship with sin, relationship with God's word, relationship with other believers, relationship with the world, relationship with the Holy Spirit, relationship with theology. These are all things we'll consider and see what the book of 1 John tells us about it. And I'm excited about this series. I, I hope that it's going to be a help. I hope that it'll be exciting for all of us. And I'm going to give you a secret tonight. You've got the book. So you can, you can read ahead. Especially if you're struggling with your own assurance of salvation, I really encourage you to study this book of 1 John. Look for those hereby we know phrases and phrases like that. Learn for yourself what this book says that new life looks like. And I, I do hope that these messages I share will be a blessing, but I don't know if there's anything more exciting than digging into truths in Scripture like this for yourself. Tonight, just to guide us as we think about studying through this book, as we begin this series, I want to leave you with a few thoughts. So first, I want to explain to you what this book is not. You could potentially read the book of 1 John, and you notice all of these evidences of new life that John gives to you, and you say to yourself, I've got some work to do. I've been sinning too much. I'm not obeying all the commandments. I'm not loving other people enough. I'm loving the world too much. Whew, I need to get busy. As we look at 1 John, we have to realize these evidences of life are not a list of things to work on. 
That's like turning to Galatians 5.22, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and you're saying, all right, let's get to work. I need to start having some love and some joy and some peace and some patience so I can have the fruit of the Spirit. Well, no, if we look at it that way, we've totally missed the whole point of the passage. It's the fruit of the Spirit. That, those verses are saying, here's what the life of God's Spirit at work in you is going to produce. And yet we often miss the point and we say, all right, I better get to work. Here's my list of things to work on, and here are the ones I most need to work on, and here we go. I can do this. And we can come to this book of 1 John and look at these evidences and say, here are the ones that I'm doing okay on, here are the ones I need to work on, so I can look more like a Christian. Well, if we look at it that way, we're really missing the point. 1 John is saying, if there's new life on the inside... These are the things that will show up on the outside. So as you read 1 John, as we consider these signs of new life together, don't look at it as a checklist or a, look at this, you need to try harder. That's not the point of this book. That's not the point of this series. So what is John trying to accomplish? Uh, what am I seeking to accomplish in in sharing this book with you. Well, first of all, I hope it'll make us examine ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul urges the Corinthians to examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. That word prove there is interesting. It's the idea of putting something through a, a process to determine whether or not it is truly what it ought to be. So when I worked at Chick-fil-A in high school, we had to do periodic RQAs, restaurant quality assessments. And uh, I was a manager towards the end, and so it was my job to do these restaurant quality assessments. I liked it because it involved getting to eat free food, all right? <laughs> but we had this handbook, and what we would do is we would take one of the food items that had been prepared, and we'd go through this checklist. Uh, you know, does the chicken look right? Did they put the lettuce and tomato on the right way? Are the buns properly toasted? Are there the right number of pickles? Are they in the right place? And we check all those things and we either say, yep, this meets the Chick-fil-A standard, or we'd say, nope, try again. We failed this time. And uh, my manager would be very unhappy if we got a failing grade. But we were looking, to that, looking at those, those things and running them through the test to prove them. Say, is this what it ought to be? Is this what it says it is? Does it meet the standard? Paul is telling us we ought to prove ourselves. We ought to examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith. I don't know any better way to prove ourselves or examine ourselves, whether we're in the faith, than through studying this book of 1 John. And I believe that in doing that, genuine believers will be strengthened, will be assured by the truths this book shares. I believe that as we study through this, if you truly know Christ, it will do nothing but strengthen your faith. 
but I do hope that it will cause us to examine ourselves. I hope it will also help us to realize if something is wrong. We realize that none of us are perfect. The standard for the Christian life is Jesus Christ. How many Christians in history have lived up to that standard? None of us. Now, it doesn't mean we say, well, nobody else did it. I don't need to worry about it either. That's our desire. That's the picture that John paints for us in this book. Here's what Jesus looks like. Here's what you ought to look like. But we understand that none of us are perfect. In fact, John is going to start out in chapter 1 pointing out the fact that if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. He understands. He concedes from the very beginning, none of us are perfect. None of us are ever going to completely achieve to that that standard of living just like Jesus Christ. But, as we look at this book of 1 John, and as we consider what it says, and we, it says, well, here's a sign of the life of Christ in you. And we examine ourselves and we realize, well, that seems to be absent in my life. That should make us uncomfortable. Not that it should necessarily make us doubt our salvation, but it should make us stop and think, you know, something's wrong here. It's like our bodies. We, we know more or less what normal feels like. And so when things are not normal, when we realize something is up, we know something needs to be done. I don't think any of us would just suddenly lose the use of our left arm and say, well, no big deal. Just keep going through life with just one arm. It's, it's, it's not, I don't need to worry about it. It stops working the right way. It's not showing the signs that are supposed to be there. And we say, whoa, we need to check this out. As we read through, as we study through the book of 1 John, it gives us a picture of normal. This is what the eternal life of Christ looks like lived out. And if we see a major disconnect, then that means either one of two things. Either we aren't truly the children of God, or something is disrupting the life of Christ being lived out through us. And either way, it ought to drive us to God. I believe that God does not intend for those who are not walking with him to have assurance of salvation. I believe that God intends for assurance of salvation to be for those who are walking with him, fellowshipping with him. And as soon as we begin to get into sin and get away from the Lord, I've seen it in my own life, I've seen it in other people's life, that assurance goes away. And God means that to be a warning sign to say, something's wrong. Run to me. And so if we look through this book of 1 John and say, whoa, 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 that's not me. That ought to drive us to say something is wrong. We need to run to Christ. And we need to, 
we, we need to pray to him and we need to consider these things and we need to say to him, I don't know. I, the, the assurance is not there. I, these signs that are supposed to be in my life, I'm not seeing them in my life. What does it mean? Do, do I need to trust you as Savior? Do I not have new life? And he is able, as we run to him, if we truly know him, I believe that he'll give us that assurance. But I also believe that he's merciful and gracious enough that as we run to him, if we don't know him, that he'll make it clear that we don't and that we need to, run, we need to come to him. We need to trust him. And so as we look through this book, I hope that we will recognize where there are things that are wrong and that those things will drive us to him. My desire is not to make us all doubt our salvation. But my desire is that we would be able to look at this book and say, by God's grace, that's the life that's being lived out through me. Finally, I hope this study will make us appreciate the life that we have. I don't want this to just be checking things off a checklist. So we go through and we say, okay, check, 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 check. I'm a Christian, good to go, close my Bible, move on with my life. Have you ever been around a healthy little baby in the first months of life? Have you ever watched them discover their hands and their feet? Have you watched as their eyesight improves, they start to see and recognize faces and colors and shapes. They discover one new thing, and then they discover another new thing, and then another, and they discover their mouth and the sounds that they can make, and they discover how they can move, they can roll around, and they can crawl, and eventually they can toddle and even walk. And it's amazing to watch, not just because you, you see the, the strength, the growth happening in that little body, but because they're experiencing this all for the first time. I mean, when they're born, they have some sense, I'm sure, of the fact that I'm alive. But as time goes on, they understand more and more of what that means. Whoa, I can do that. Whoa, there's that thing in the world whoa, this whole life thing is really amazing. And that wonder is amazing to see, isn't it? Because they, they're beginning to realize this is what it means to have life. Well, what about eternal life? That's amazing too. And I hope that as we study this book together, we'll realize a, a bit more of what's really included in the new life package that we all got at salvation. Christ lives in me. And boy, when I got saved, I certainly didn't understand all that that meant. Many of us, when we come to Christ, we, we realize, I need, I need forgiveness of my sin. I need Christ to be able to live with God forever in heaven. But we don't understand all the riches that there are to the fact that Christ lives in us now. And so as we look at the book of 1 John, I, I hope that for many of us, we'll look at this and we'll say, wow, I don't just have a home in heaven. I don't just have the forgiveness of sins. My entire life has been transformed from the inside out. And I hope for those of us who know Christ as Savior, that this study will excite us. 
I hope it will enliven us. I hope it will cause us to say, thank you, Savior, that I have eternal life, that I have your life, that I have this new life. And I hope that we'll be able to discover some of those new things, perhaps, that we didn't know, or that we'll be reminded of all the richness that there is to the life that we have in him. 1 John 3, verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. It goes on in verse 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That verse reminds us that even as we begin to explore all there is to the eternal life we have in Christ, all that it means to have Christ living in us, and we discover more and more of those truths as we walk with God, as we uh, listen to his spirit, as we read his word, there are things about that we're not going to understand until we get to heaven. He says, we, um, we no, I'm sorry, it does not yet appear what we shall be. We don't know all that awaits us. We don't know all that's wrapped up in our new life. But we do know it's amazing. And we know that as we continue to dig, we're never going to get to the bottom of that. We're just going to continue to dig up new wonderful truths and say, wow, this is what it means that Christ lives in me. So my desire as we go to this book is first of all to glorify the Lord as we consider the nature of the life that he has gifted to those of us who know him. I also want this to be a help to all of us to strengthen our faith. And I hope that if there are those among us who do not know Christ as Savior, that this will be a wake-up call that it would cause us to run to Christ, to say, here's what your word says it ought to look like, and that's not what it looks like. But as we turn our attention now towards communion, what better thought is there than 1 John chapter 3, verse 1? I read it just a moment ago. A moment ago. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. How could he love us that much? That he would not just say, wow, look at those poor humans down there. I better do something so that they don't just have to die in their sins. But that he would say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to provide a way for their sins to be forgiven I'm going to provide them a home with me forever in heaven. And I'm going to go and live in them. I'm going to live out my divine life through them. I'm going to let them know the closeness of fellowship that goes beyond understanding that they will walk with me every moment of every day. And I will use them to do things they couldn't imagine because I'm living through them. 
and I will change their lives in ways that they could never grasp because it's going to be my life and not just theirs. What love that he would call us his children, that he would give us Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ coming into us would give us eternal life. That eternal life we have in Christ comes to us as a gift, a gift that was bought through death. So as we rejoice in being God's little children, let's not forget the price he paid to give us that precious title. I want us to spend some time in prayer now, just silent prayer. And I'd ask you to all close, close your eyes so each of us can more effectively make it just between us and God. Just a few thoughts before we pray. I think that most, for most of you, I know you to some degree, but no one can truly know another person's heart. And so as we bow for prayer, if you are not assured that you do indeed possess that new life, if you're not sure that Christ lives in you, I encourage you to run to Christ to plead with him to help you to know. He is merciful and gracious. He doesn't want to leave you in the dark. And by his grace and his word, I believe that he'll help you to know if you truly do have his eternal life or if you need to come to him and receive his gift of salvation. And also, we'd be happy to do our best to help you. Only God knows your heart, but we can point you to the truth of God's word. We can point you to what he says about having a relationship with him. And so if that's you, if this is something you're struggling with, I'd ask you to to seek us out, me or another member of the pastoral staff, one of the deacons who will be up here in just a little bit during the Lord's Supper time. If you are confident that you have new life, the new life of Christ in you, I encourage you to do one of two things, possibly both, as we have this time of prayer. First, I encourage you to meditate on the wonder of the new life that you have in Christ. And second, I encourage you to consider what there may be in your life tonight that is unbecoming of the new life that you have. Something that doesn't match. And I challenge you to confess that to the Lord, to make it right, so that all can be right between your soul and the Savior. Now let's have a time of prayer together. Father, I praise you tonight that if we did take time to go around the room, the folks in this room could share story after story of your grace in their lives, of your saving grace in their lives, of you reaching into their lives in wonderful supernatural ways. 
and of bringing them to Christ. Lord, thank you that so many of us know and understand, even if maybe just in a small part, the miracle of the fact that Christ lives in us. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to wonder in the nature of that life, to wonder in the fact that you would ever give the gift of Christ to us, to wonder in the fact that Christ would undergo so much, even the death of the cross. And Lord, I pray tonight, Lord, I can only think that there may be some, probably are some in this room who need to come to Christ, who have not yet run to you and uh, confessed their sin and trusted in Christ to save them. And Lord, I ask that you would work in those hearts. Touch them. I can't touch them with my words, but Lord, your Holy Spirit can reach in and touch them and uh, show to them their need. And I ask that you do that work. And Lord, I can only think as well tonight that there are those who are struggling with the matter of assurance. And Lord, I know what a weight that can be, how it can hold us back from taking steps of faith, from growing in our Christian walk. And Lord, I pray for any who are struggling that way tonight. Lord, help them to run to you. Help them to turn to the truth of your word. And I pray that you would make it clear to them uh, the life that they have or the life that they can have in Christ. Now, Lord, as we turn our attention to the sacrifice of Christ for us, would you help us to worship you in a worthy way as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that our hearts would be free from sin, our minds would be free from distraction, that our desire would be singly on lifting Christ up, on praising you, on thanking you. And Lord, would you help this time together around your table to strengthen us, to uh, give us new resolve, to obey Christ and follow Christ and submit to Christ in every area of our lives and be used by you as you see fit throughout this week. And Lord, we leave this all in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.